If you have a Bible with you tonight, I would like you to turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 through 15. Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 through 15. This is the last in a four-part series that I've entitled Messages to the Conscience. These are four messages that have been designed to especially prick our consciences, to make us really think about important issues, uh, life-changing issues, issues that may be hidden deep in our hearts. And tonight, we are going to look at the great white throne judgment. And this is a passage that over my long tenure here, I have preached on at least two different times. Uh, so some of what I say tonight, some of you may recognize from other messages. It's just one of those texts that I think needs to be, be, be brought before a church body on a regular basis. So don't be surprised if I preach on it again in the future because I think it's that important. We are talking about the end of the end times. We are talking about the end of the end times in this great scene that is described for us in the book of Revelation. And this is what the Apostle John records. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is one of those messages that I hope that you could use for counseling purposes or for evangelism purposes. The very first message in this series I entitled Moments of Truth, that we all come to those forks in the road in our lives, those significant moral decisions where we could go one way or another for righteousness or for evil, even as Christians. And I shared a number of different ways that we can prepare ourselves for moments of truth in all of our lives. And I said that could be used. You could sit down and use that for counseling someone who is struggling with sin in their life. This is the same kind of message, I hope. This is something that you could sit down and share one-on-one -on -one or in a small group with others. Well, our first point tonight is the great white throne. This evening, I want to share with you one of the most dramatic and terrifying scenes in the Bible. There are two scenes in the Bible that I find 
frightening, even for Christians. Two scenes in the Bible that I find frightening, even, even for Christians or people professing to be Christians. This is one of them. The other one I am going to refer to at the end of this message that is found in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. The scene we are looking at tonight, folks, is so frightening that some Christians have a hard time talking about it. Some Christians have a hard time talking about judgment and death and hell. But the Bible presents them as being very real. In verse 11, it says, Then I saw, John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. So we are talking at the end of the end times. There is this great white throne and there is someone seated on it. Now, I believe that person is Jesus Christ. It is not God the Father. It is Jesus Christ. And you can honestly ask tonight, Pastor Tim, how do you know that? And I want to look at that for a few minutes. How do we know that it is Jesus Christ who is sitting on the great white throne? Well, in John chapter 5, verse 22, and also in verses 26 and 27, Jesus says this, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him, the Son, authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is speaking to Cornelius and to those that Cornelius has gathered in his home. His family and friends, they're all gathered there to hear what Peter has to say. And in Acts chapter 10 and verse 42, Peter says about Jesus, he says this, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is in Athens. He is speaking before the Areopagus, which was this place where people with all kinds of philo philosophical ideas would come, and Paul makes his presentation. In Acts 17.31, Paul says this about Jesus. For he has set a day, or excuse me, this is what he says about God. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. So God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by this man he has appointed. So who is this man he has appointed? He tells us he has given us proof of this, or he has given Proof to this by raising him from the dead, a clear reference to Jesus. So the one sitting on the great white throne is Jesus himself. Now it says in the second sentence of verse 11, from his presence, from Jesus' presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. 
The reference to the sky here is a reference to the heavenly realms. So he is saying, John is saying, from Christ's presence, the present earth and the present heavens fled away and no place was found for them. We don't want to get into all this tonight. I shared this with you extensively when we went through the book of Revelation a number of years ago. But the present heaven and the present earth are going to pass away and there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And so the present earth and the present heaven have fled away. But here is the thought in relation to the great white throne judgment. There is nowhere to run and there is nowhere to hide. I don't know exactly where this is going to take place at. Somewhere in the universe there is going to be this great white throne and the present earth and the present heaven have passed away. There is a huge throng of people standing before the throne. Look at the first part of verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Folks, I don't know if, you've, if you think about this much. But the dead are not dead. The dead are not eternally dead. We know that in relation to Christians. We'll be conducting a funeral service for Marilyn Goldman on Tuesday. We know she's with Jesus. We rejoice in that and we will, in essence, celebrate. We will mourn, we will grieve, but we will also rejoice and celebrate. But I want you to know this. The unsaved dead are not dead eternally either. They will be raised to life and they will suffer consciously for all eternity. Let me say that again. Even the unsaved dead will be raised to face the judgment of Christ and they will consciously suffer for all of eternity. That is not only a frightening thought, it is one that ought to bring tears to all of our eyes and sorrow to all of our hearts. And I saw the dead, notice that, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The dead have been raised to life and they are standing before the throne. Those who have died without Christ have been raised to life for one purpose, to stand before the great white throne. In John chapter 5 and verse 28, Jesus says this, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil, and those who have done evil will rise, notice this, to be condemned. John said it was the dead, great and small. There is coming a day when a person's status on this earth will mean absolutely nothing. Doesn't matter who you were on this earth, you are going to stand if you don't know Christ as your Savior. If you are not born again, doesn't matter who you are, you will stand before this great white throne. 
says there will be the small and the great. There will be the small and the great intellectually. There will be the small and the great physically. There will be the small and the great financially. There will be the small and the great positionally. And in every other way, there are going to be kings and billionaires standing before the great white throne, and there are going to be people who lived in grass huts and who were homeless who will be standing before the great white throne because what you were on this earth, as far as your status, your finances, your power, will mean absolutely nothing. It will be of no advantage to you. And in verse 12, it says, And books were opened. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And I want you to notice that that is plural. There are all kinds of books that were opened. And then it says this. We're going to skip over the middle sentence there, and then, and we're going to come back to it in a little bit. But then it says, And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Notice that. These people who have been raised to stand before the great white throne are going to be judged according to these books according to what they had done. They are going to be judged by the way they live their lives and the decisions that they made, especially the decision whether to accept or reject Jesus Christ. Now, this is very important here. They are going to be judged by what they had done. That means no true Christians will be there. Because, folks, we are not going to be judged by our works. We're going to be judged, or really, we won't be judged. We have eternal life because we have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We have said, I will not trust in my good works. I will not trust in my human works. I will trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. And here is where I stand. So we will not be judged according to our works, but these are the people. These are the people who said, I'm going to take my chances by the way I lived my life, and so they will be judged by the way they live their life. In other words, they trusted in their human works, and they will be judged by their human works. Imagine, they will stand before the throne and everything about them every thought they've ever had, every word, every word they've ever spoken. They trusted in themselves and in their own works, and so that's how they will be judged. It will all be revealed, and no one will be able to stand before the great white throne. Everyone will be without excuse, and everyone will be condemned. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 14, Solomon comes to the end of this intriguing Old Testament book and says this, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. In Luke chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, Nothing is concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Everything, everything that a, a person has thought or said or done will be brought to light. 
Well, our second point tonight is where they come from and where they go. I want to look at where these unsaved people who are being judged according to their works, according to what they had done, where do they come from and where are they going? I want you to notice where, first of all, I want you to notice where the people come from. Look at verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Now notice this. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. We're talking about the same people here. They are the unsaved people from every era of history. They're all raised. The unsaved from every period of history is raised to stand before the great white throne. Whether they drowned at sea, whether they are in Hades, and by the way, Hades here is a reference to the present hell. Hades is the place where the unsaved are held until the great white throne judgment. Okay, let me say that again. We just very generally say they're in hell. We use that term in a very general way. But biblically, specifically, Hades is the place right now where the unsaved are held until they are raised to stand before the great white throne. These are the people who rejected God's free gift of salvation in Christ and rather chose to trust in their own human works. Let me say that again. These are the people who rejected God's free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ and chose rather to trust in their own human works. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now, in the middle of verse 12, there is a sentence that I skipped over, and I want to come back to that. Back in verse 12, it says that another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, I want you to notice that this is singular. It is a book. It is the book of life. So, and thus where my sermon title comes from, there is a book, and there are books. There is the book of life at the great white throne judgment, and there are the books, plural, which include all the deeds of every person who is being judged at that particular time. The book of life, the book of life contains the names of every person who has ever trusted Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. Every time we understand our salvation more, it gets more and more amazing. Not only are we made right with God, not only are we forgiven of our sins, not only are we adopted into the family of God, but folks, our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. If you know him tonight, if you truly know him as Lord and Savior, your name right now, present tense, is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Again, I don't want you to just trust me on this. Let's look at Scripture. In Revelation chapter 3, 
In verse 5, Jesus is addressing the church at Sardis. It was the church that he said, in Jesus' words, you're dead. You're just a dead church. But there are some in you who have not soiled themselves with evil, and they will be dressed in white. And then it says in Revelation 3, 5, the one who is victorious, which is a reference to the one who is saved, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. What a great thought. I will never. I want to make it personal tonight. Jesus says, I will never blot out your name from the book of life. Revelation 13.8 all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. That is so interesting. All the inhabitants of the earth are going to worship the beast associated with the Antichrist except those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, which means those, na those whose names are in the book of life who are alive during the tribulation period may suffer great persecution, but they will not. They will not worship the beast. Finally, Revelation 21:27 says this, there is going to be a new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven called the holy city. It will be our eternal dwelling place ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is what John says. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What a great promise. The only people who can enter the new Jerusalem are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we got the book, and we've got the books. Now I want you to notice where the people go, where the people who are being judged according to their works, where they go. Look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's interesting. I didn't write that. That's not my opinion. It's not my thought. The English translation is accurate here. Then death and Hades, those who were raised to life from death and Hades, were thrown into the lake of fire. When it says death and Hades, it technically means every person held by death in Hades. And they will be cast, they will be thrown into the lake of fire where they will be consciously tormented forever and ever. Now I want you to notice, death and Hades were thrown into this lake of fire. 
In verse 13 it says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So every unsaved person who's being judged according to their human works because they trusted in their human works, all of them will be thrown into the lake of fire. And my point is, no one will pass the judgment. There's no person there who will be able to say, but I was good enough, or I did enough good works. No one will pass the judgment. Every single lost person will be sentenced to the lake of fire. And then John says this. This is the second death, the lake of fire. You have probably heard this before. But we, as Christians, will die once, unless we're raptured before we die. We will die once, and then we will be with the Lord. To be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord for the believer. However, for those without Christ, there will be two deaths. They will die physically, they will have a funeral service, but then they will be raised, in essence, to die again when they are cast into the lake of fire. And that's why it says, this is the second death, the lake of fire. Now, I want you to notice in this passage, there is a double-phased prosecution. A double-phased prosecution. In verse 15, it says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Folks, it's pretty simple. If your name is not in the Lamb's book of life, you will be thrown into the eternal lake of fire. So I want you to notice, not only were they condemned by their works, not only were they judged according to their works, but they were condemned because their name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life. So it was, I can't find your name here. Your name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, so you will be judged according to your works, and no one can stand. No one can ever earn their own salvation by their own human works. So there is this double-phased prosecution. Your name's not in the Lamb's book of life. You are judged according to your works. And to bring this down to our understanding, these are the people who rejected the eternal life offered them in Christ. Let me read verse 15 again. It really says it all. And if anyone's name, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Our third point tonight is this. Will you be there? You may say, Pastor Tim, you're speaking primarily to believers tonight. And I realize that. I'm still asking the question, will you be there? Perhaps the most soul-searching question you could ever ask is, will I be there? Will I be at the great white throne just judgment? If you have genuinely trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will not be there, guaranteed. However, 
question is, and I ask this to all of us here tonight, have you genuinely trusted Christ as your Savior? I believe that the great white throne is a message not only for the lost, but also for those who believe or say they have professed to know Christ. Let's do this. Let's think about who will be there. Who will be at the great white throne? Obviously, those who are blatantly evil and those who blatantly rejected Christ. Those who just say, I want nothing to do with him, have nothing to do with him, we know they will be there. But there are going to be people there who did not expect to be there. And that's why this passage is so frightening. I want you to listen very carefully with me as I go through the remainder of this. There are, I guarantee it, based on Scripture, not on my thoughts or opinion, there are going to be people at the great white throne judgment who did not expect to be there. There are going to be people who honestly thought they had done enough good works to get themselves to heaven all over the world. And we could say in Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, think of all the people who are trying to do enough good so that they can get to some form of heaven or eternal life. However, there are many people who would say they are Christians. And we know that is a broad term, especially used in the West. Many people who use the term Christian who are trusting in trying to live a good life in order to get to heaven, they will be there. There are going to be people who were very religious, who tried to be very religious and trusted in their religious ceremonies and their religious activities in order to get to heaven. They will be in the books, not in the book. You know who else is going to be there? There's going to be some nice people there, at least people that we said or thought were nice. I hear from time to time, even from people in our own church, and I, I understand what they mean, they will say this, somebody has passed away. And they will say, somebody will ask them, well, uh, do you know if they're in heaven? Do you know if they trusted Christ as Savior? Well, I don't know whether they did or not, but I know they were really nice, so they must be in heaven. I hear that from, even from well-meaning Christians. I don't know if they trusted Christ or not, but I do know this. They were really nice, so they must be in heaven. Folks, I want us to understand tonight, niceness doesn't get you into heaven. It doesn't. Now, we as born-again Christians should be the nicest people in the world. Genuinely redeemed people should be nice, but niceness in and of itself, is not how you get into heaven. Here's an even deeper question. Will there be people there 
from churches like ours? Will there be people at the great white throne judgment from churches like ours? And I would say this, it is possible, very likely, that there will be people at the great white throne judgment who had serious doubts about their salvation and never dealt with those doubts. There are going to be people from churches like ours who weren't really sure about their salvation and they never, never dealt with it. Now, I want to make an important distinction tonight between temporary doubt and serious long-term doubt. My guess is, maybe not all of you, but many of you here tonight from time to time have had doubts about your salvation. Something happened in your life. Maybe you did something and you think, how could I do that? How can I be born again and, and do that? But then you go back to Scripture and you reaffirm your salvation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who's never really sure. But they continue to come to church. And let's face it, folks. You can be in a church like ours and you can learn the Christian lingo. You can be involved in ministries but never know in your own heart of hearts whether you have ever really trusted Christ as Savior. It is possible. It is possible to be active in a Bible-believing church and not be born again. The question is, what are you trusting in for your salvation? Every person, every one of us, I don't care if you're a pastor, a deacon, an elder, a missionary, do you know for sure that you are trusting in Christ's death and resurrection alone for your salvation and in nothing else? Have you ever come to that point in your life where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a child of God? Are you sure in the deepest part of your soul that you've been truly born again? And I tell you where this can get frightening. And that is for kids who grow up in good churches. Mom and dad are saved and active in the church. Maybe mom and dad have a kind of sensational testimony. Maybe they lived a life of sin and now they're born again. They came to know Christ in some dramatic way. And maybe... We've talked about this before. There's a child who prays a prayer. doesn't have to be a child. It could be an older teen who prays a prayer but really doesn't understand what they mean, doesn't really understand what they're doing. No one ever deals with it in their life, and so they just they go to youth group. They work in Awana. They work at the Beacon of Hope. They work in ministries of the church and all the while, never really understanding what it means to be born again. We know, folks, we know, don't we? There are kids who grow up in churches just like ours. And they become adults and they just totally wander away from the faith. Totally wander away from the faith. And we can blame it on the secular university or we can blame it on the culture. 
But I will tell you, they were never born again in the first place. Often, things out there simply expose who you really are, that you've never trusted him as your savior. I have heard some amazing testimonies over the years. Folks, I have heard of pastors who have said, I came to the conclusion that I had not been saved. I was preaching to others and was convicting myself. People who had been in pastoral ministry who said, I've never been born again. I grew up in a good church. They told me what to say. I went off to Bible school, but I've never dealt with my own salvation. I personally heard the testimony of an evangelist, a full-time evangelist, who said I was leading other people to Christ and then realized I was never born again went through the motions all these years, knew the gospel message, and the gospel convicts people. But I realized I'd never done, truly done what I was asking other people to do. I heard the testimony of a professional Christian musician who was traveling with a, a group all over the United States, all over the world, in fact. And she said, one night at her own concert, she realized she was not born again and yet was ministering to others. I've heard of deacons. I've heard of Sunday school teachers. I've heard of faithful church members who have come to realize they have never truly repented of their sin and invited Christ to come into their life. Oh, they may have prayed some prayer, but never really understood what it meant, never really dealt with their own sinfulness and need for a Savior. Now, you may be saying tonight, Pastor Tim, how do you know? How do you know there will be people at the great white throne who don't expect to be there? And that brings us to the other scariest passage in the Bible. That is Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. This is a very frightening passage. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The will of his Father in heaven is to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Now watch verses 22 and 23. This kind of brings the Bible together. Many, I've always been intrigued by that word, many will say to me on that day, what is that day? It's the great white throne judgment. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? There are going to be people there who are going to say, Lord, I prophesied in your name. The word prophecy here means to preach. I have preached and taught in your name. And in your name, in the name of Jesus, I have driven out demons. I have performed miracles. Now watch the last two sentences. Jesus says this, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
there are going to be people at the great white throne who prophesied in Jesus' name, who cast out demons in Jesus' name, who performed miracles in Jesus' name, but did not genuinely know him as Lord and Savior. I have shared this with you many times before, and I share it again. If your children have doubts about their salvation, let them work through those doubts. Let them work it through. Don't say to them, but don't you remember you prayed a prayer in second grade? Don't you remember you were in so-and-so Sunday school class and they took you aside and you prayed a prayer? If they're not sure, let them work it through. Maybe they just need to be assured of their salvation. Maybe they were truly saved and just need to be assured. Maybe, maybe, they didn't understand what they were doing and they want to make sure. Oh, let them, folks, I beg you, let them make sure. And I'll say this, the longer you profess to be a Christian, the harder it is to come to the conclusion that you may not be. The longer you profess to be a Christian, the harder it may be or it is to come to the conclusion, I've never really been born again. Now, I want to say something important here. I am not trying to scare anyone out of their salvation. God forbid. God forbid. But at the same time, I want all of us to make sure. We say, don't we? Nothing, nothing is more important than making sure that you have repented of your sin and genuinely received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There is nothing on this earth more important than that decision. Make sure. Oh, folks, I don't care who you are, what age you are. Make sure in your heart of hearts, in the depths of your soul, that you have truly, genuinely made that decision. I preach this message tonight because I don't want you to be at the great white throne. If you genuinely know him as Savior, you won't be there. So make sure, make sure you genuinely know him as your Savior. If you take a hard look at this passage, you will realize there is nothing, nothing that we can talk about, nothing that we can discuss that is more important than this. Oh, God help us that in the end, our names will be found written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Let's pray together. Father, may every person here, and as we minister to others who doubt, we pray for them. Lord, help us to make sure that there has been a time in our life where we understand and know that we were sinners and that we repented of that sin and trusted for our salvation in the death and resurrection of Christ and in that alone. Oh, God, help us. God, help us. May this scene convict every one of our souls and may it convict us as we work with and minister to others and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.